Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Scary Savannah and Beyond Podcast. I'm your host, Brett, and with me as always is my lovely wife, Crystal. How have you been this week, Crystal? I've been good. I've been very busy getting the house ready. We've got family coming for an early Christmas celebration. Yes, we do. We've got to finish up all our Christmas shopping, so I've been doing a lot of Amazon shopping. So what did you get me for Christmas? I can't tell you that. Okay. What did you get me? I could tell you that, but I'm not going to because I'm going to let you find out what you got for Christmas on January 3rd when I give you all your Christmas presents. That's not nice. I know. I'm just a rapscallion. <laughs> well, speaking know. of Christmas, this week we're going to talk about two Christmas time true crime stories. But before we get to that, we would like to remind you that you can find us online at www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com or you can go to www.scarysavannah.net. You can find us on social media. Look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the username at Scary Savannah. And also, just a quick uh, request from you, we would love to let you know about our Patreon page. If you go to that, you can help support our podcast because this is it's a, very expensive. It's a very expensive because I just can't stop buying things for it. You know, you'd but, be shocked how expensive plugins are, and I don't even know what they do. I mean, neither, but I can't stop he keeps buying. buying them. Exactly. But if you go there, you can support us for as little as three dollars a month. And if you support us for a little bit more, there's uh, gifts there that you would get, such as uh, coffee mugs. Stickers and t shirts. You can go to patreon.com forward slash scary savannah. And also, if you'd like to give us a call, you can call us at our phone number, which is 912 406 2899. That's 912 406 2899. And leave us a voicemail there if there's something you'd like to ask us or a story you'd like us to cover, or if you have some corrections. Or if you would just like to record something to play on the podcast, we'd love for you to give us a message there. With that being said, now we're going to get into our first story. Los Feliz home, notorious for a brutal murder that took place decades ago, is up for sale once again. Okay, so this house from this clip you just heard, I heard about it um, not too long ago. But the way I heard it is probably more sensational than it actually is. It's more like an urban legend rather than a true story. Okay. So I'll tell you the popular version that I heard and then the more likely version that I've uncovered through a bunch of research. All right. If you want to deep dive into this case, I highly recommend the podcast, The Las Feliz Murder Mansion. A lot of my information came from them. It's a seven part podcast and it's quite exhaustive. However, I'm going to give you the condensed version. So the popular version of the story goes like this. It's Christmas 1959 in the upscale enclave of Las Feliz, California. It's an exclusive neighborhood at the top of the hill on Glendower Place in the Hollywood Hills. A 5,050-square-foot Spanish Revival-style mansion sits on this hill. It's decorated for the holidays, complete with a Christmas tree and presents. How could this get creepy? <laughs> Dr. Harold Pearlson arrives home from work. A family, which includes his wife Lillian, their 18-year-old daughter Judy, their son Joel, age 13, and their daughter Debbie, age 11. After dinner, they put the two younger children to bed. Lillian retired to her twin bed in the master bedroom. 
Again, it's the 1950s and the Pearlsons have separate twin beds in their joint room. I thought that was just something that was made that's up for TV shows. That's what I thought it was shows. just on TV shows, but apparently that's what happened. Like Bewitched and stuff where they're like in separate beds because they didn't want to offend anybody. I Love Lucy. Or I Love Lucy. I don't know. I didn't actually watch either of those shows. so Yeah, they know. definitely did that, and I love Lucy. Anyway, Harold went to his study to do a little reading. So all is calm, all is bright, right? It sounds like a Christmas carol. Sounds perfect. That mm-hmm. is until around 4.30 in the morning. Harold leaves his study and picks up a ball-peen hammer. Okay, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> he enters the master bedroom, walks over to his sleeping wife, and bludgeons her to death. All while a large black and white peacock painted on the wall watches in silence. Hmm. Weird, huh? That is weird. Despite repeated blows from the hammer, Lillian's actual cause of death is asphyxia, meaning she drowned in her own blood. That is pretty gruesome. So, covered in his wife's blood, Harold makes his way to his daughter Judy's room. Oh, no. He hits her on the head with a hammer, but this wakes her up and she begins to fight back. The two younger children are awakened by the commotion and come to see what's happening. Their father turns to them and says, go back to bed. This is just a bad dream. That sounds like it. Yeah. That's <laughs> and he all. continues to try to kill Judy. Luckily, she's able to fight him off. What I read is he, he wasn't a really big man. He was like five foot seven. So so he was just a little shorter than me. Oh, you're five ten. That's what my license says, but I think it's a lie. <laughs> well, I don't think five seven is a tall guy. No. So luckily, she fights him off and escapes to a neighbor's house. Another neighbor comes over to see what's happening, and Harold tells him to go home. That's all he had to say, apparently. (laughs) Just go home. Harold then goes into the bathroom and swallows a bottle of acid. He collapses on Judy's bedroom floor and dies before police and the ambulance arrive. Drinks a bottle of acid. (laughs) That's what it is. If you're going to off yourself, why are you going to do it with a bottle of acid? That's got to be (laughs) excruciating. And why do you have a bottle of acid? I mean, I know you're a doctor, but do doctors typically have bottles of acid? I wouldn't think so. I mean, maybe he had some battery acid or something. Did they have, <laughs> in the ba- bathroom. Did they have batteries in the 1950s? In the bathroom. Yeah. The legend says that although the house was sold shortly after the horrific crime, no one ever moved into the house and it remained untouched for nearly 60 years. Okay. Supposedly, the tree and presents were still visible from the windows and curious trespassers would sneak onto the property regularly trying to get a glimpse of a house frozen in time. Sounds exactly like a horror novel. I bet this has been done in a horror novel before, hasn't it? I don't know. Well, I'm writing one. So a lot of this seems pretty far-fetched, like drinking acid to kill yourself. Why would you just have that? And why would a multi-million dollar property sit empty for decades? And why would a seemingly successful doctor snap and murder his wife and try to murder his daughter? Those are all good questions. What I've discovered is that while a lot of the story is true, there's a lot more to it. First of all, it didn't occur on Christmas. Oh. oh, that's a bummer. It was yeah. actually December 6th, but I guess that's close enough to make it a Christmas story. Well, I mean, they probably had Christmas decorations up around August 15th. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, no, this is the 50s. Mm-hmm. Didn't they wait till like two hours before Santa came to even put the tree up? Yeah, I think they did put it up on Christmas night, but I think this was a fake tree, obviously, or it wouldn't be there years later. You wouldn't think so. And they were Jewish, so I'm not even sure they would have had a Christmas tree. I, I guess a lot of them, a lot of Jewish people do put up trees, but I don't know. The only Jewish person I ever knew and was friends with didn't have a Christmas tree, so I don't know. The Goldbergs don't on the Goldberg show. I don't know. Yeah, but that's not real. I don't know. That's a TV show. (laughs) So starting with this house, like I said, the house is located in Los Feliz in the Hollywood Hills. It's an impressive structure at the top of this hill. There are at least 50 steps leading up to the house. 
check out our website or social media to see pictures. It's supposed to be one of the three houses that inspired the murder house in the first season of American Horror Story. Oh, really? Yeah. That's uh, That house is pretty intense looking at it on that first murder house. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what they call it? Yeah. It was designed in 1925 by Harry Werner. Oh, old man Werner. <laughs> Other houses in Los Feliz include a home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son. It's called the Ennis House. Frank Lloyd Wright's the one that did all those uh, really elaborate houses built in the side of mountains and stuff, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The Ennis House was the house featured in the 1950s horror film House on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price. So it's just right there by this house. So that's weird. Wow. Vincent Price. Another notable house located nearby is the La Bianca House. That sounds like something I should know about. This is the house where a couple were murdered by the Manson family right after they murdered Sharon Tate. Oh, I didn't know they murdered more than Sharon Tate in that crowd. Yeah. I thought that was the only thing they did. No, uh, they murdered this husband and wife here. Oh. In the, in the Hollywood Hills. But the house at the center of this tragedy is located at 2475 Glendower Place. It's a okay. Spanish-style, all-white, with a Spanish-style roof. It has four bedrooms, three bathrooms, a formal dining room, library, and a third-story ballroom with a bar. Okay. you got to have your bar. I know. Wouldn't you just love to have a ballroom? Like, why? That just seems <laughs> Who has a ballroom? Very excessive. But, yeah, I'd like two of them. And if it's 1925 when this is built, then wasn't that Prohibition? I, so I they thought had a it was bar. in the 20s. Yeah, yeah, so they like had a bar up there, I guess. Like, I have a feeling there's probably like a lever you'd pull on like a <laughs> suit of armor's arm and then it would be like, zoinks, and it'd spin around and then there would be like your little speakeasy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, the cops are coming. Turn it all around. So like almost all the houses in this area, it's over 5,000 square feet. The median property value today in Los Feliz is around $1.6 million. So you can imagine it's home to celebrities, actors, musicians, and doctors. Okay, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of famous people live out there. So you would think that somebody would want to buy this house, right? I would. It's already got a ballroom and a bar. I mean, what more could you want? In 1959, at the time of the crime, it was worth around $60,000. Wow. In today's money, that's nearly $62,000, right? It's a little more than that. Like $1.6 No, like $2.6. Oh, Okay. <laughs> 2.3, something like that. Yeah. The house has a large window that spans two stories, and from the outside, you can see the staircase that leads up to the third floor ballroom. It definitely looks abandoned these days. Recently, they've placed a fence all around the property with razor wire around the top to keep out trespassers. Really? Yeah. Like I said, people were sneaking onto the property trying to catch a glimpse of this fabled Christmas tree and unwrapped gifts. So we might need to take a, uh, a stop off on the way to Vegas, maybe drop off the plane, come in and, you know, see the, uh, what is this house called? Los Feliz. Los Feliz. Los Feliz Murder House. Okay, the Los Feliz Murder House. Yeah. Yeah, it's spelled like Feliz Navidad, but they they say it Feliz. Now, okay. they don't say it like that. They say Los Feliz. Okay. That's how the locals pronounce it, from what I gathered. All right. So many people have actually broken in and taken pictures and attempted to capture EVPs to see if the house is haunted. One video I saw on YouTube, a couple went in and supposedly captured a voice calling for help. They said they felt very uncomfortable and the girl wanted to leave. So it seems if a house is going to be haunted, this one could be haunted. Okay. What do you think? It's obviously got some horrific crime that happened and a ballroom and a bar. Yeah, it's all you need for a ghost story. Yeah, it's a ghost story waiting to happen. I I bet you're going to have Jack Nicholson there. (laughs) 
People have reported to have seen personal belongings from that family still there, even though it was sold shortly thereafter. Clothes, shoes, even the light switch plate cover with the name Judy on it. And I actually saw a picture of this and I'll post it. One man claims there was an extremely large collection of Playboy magazines. Clearly, it was about the articles. Of course. It (laughs) always has been. I don't even know if they write articles anymore. I think they did a lot back then. Not that I knew that they did to start with. (laughs) So before 2009, there was very little awareness or interest in the Las Feliz murder house. What initially started all this interest was a 2009 article featured in the LA Times by Bob Poole. He interviewed a house painter named Steve Kolopsky who had been working on the house next door. He had asked the owner of the house what the deal was with that abandoned house, and after hearing the story, he found it fascinating and began to tell stories to his friends about seeing the Christmas tree and wrap presents still under the tree. He was telling them stories? Did he actually see it, or well, was he just he, saying that He to said try that, to but he's flair. one of those guys that likes to start stuff. Okay. So he would drive them up there at night and explore and like try to spook them out. Yeah. And he, like if they said they didn't see the presence or whatever, he's like, you didn't look hard enough and that kind of thing. They only show up to the initiated. <laughs> the writer of the article heard about this and interviewed Steve. And after this article, the house became a sensation. Later, Steve admitted that he may have seen a Christmas tree, but not presents. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, maybe in my haste, I might have just made a little of this up. The article is also where we learned that Dr. Pearlson drank acid. Okay. So like I said, that seems unlikely. So we'll get back to that later. I'm not buying that. I don't think he did that. He might have drank some bleach. (laughs) Who keeps bleach in the bathroom? I don't know. Bleach and acid. Okay. So let's talk about this doctor. Dr. Harold Perlson was a successful heart surgeon, but he had a penchant for spending money, as did his wife and oldest daughter. So the doctor tried to patent and sell a new type of syringe, but his business partner never produced the syringes. As they don't. (laughs) So he sued the partner for $100,000, but he only received 23000 And in today's money, that's 37 cents. I think it was a lot of money, but not what he wanted. In 1957, his three children were in a car accident in Vermont. The judge awarded barely enough in damages to cover their medical bills, even though he was asking for like 20000 each. Yeah. So upon the 50-year-old doctor's death, it was discovered he was deeply in debt. He was behind on many bills, including the tuition for his son's private military school that was attended by the sons of Joe DiMaggio and Charlie Chaplin. Oh, that! but that was an interesting group. It says we can always play some baseball and do it in silence. <laughs> this was costing him around $1,300 a month in today's money. Oh, just for tuition. today's money. Yeah, just for tuition. Man. He liked to keep up with the Joneses, as they say. Okay. He owed close to $24,000 in back taxes. That's today's money. Okay. He owed thousands of dollars to pharmaceutical companies and other doctors, and he had bounced several checks. The biggest claim was from a fellow doctor who said he owed him roughly $474,000 in today's money. Mere pocket change in Los Feliz, right? <laughs> Apparently, Harold and his wife had entered into a deal with this doctor. His name was Max Ebar. Okay, that's not real. That can't be real. What is this doctor's name? Well, they call me Dr. Max Ebar. <laughs> so it was just 11 months before their deaths that they entered into this deal where he would sign over his medical practice to them and Harold would pay him a whole bunch of money, like 250 a month for for the office. And then he was also leasing some other space for $753 a month. And the amount he was about to pay was going to increase from $250 a month to $1,000 a month, just 22 days after the doctor killed himself. 
So he had that coming up and he knew he couldn't afford it. And yeah. So that's like a thousand dollars a month then. Yeah. So it's a lot of money. Yeah. And that's on top of everything else they would have to pay. Yeah. And the $474,000. Yeah. So in a letter found written by Judy to her aunt, she said, on the merry-go-round again, same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. So okay. it seems like financial stress was a huge factor. That'll usually why, do it. And why Harold snapped. Yeah. He blamed his wife and daughter for spending too much money. Apparently Lillian liked to buy clothes on sale, even if they weren't her size. But who don't? You know? <laughs> that weren't even her size. Okay, now. <laughs> well, I might being be said, able to wear it someday. This being said, you literally just bought a jacket at Target that was not your size. Know, but it was so pretty. It was close. It was too big. But I did, my, I did find it online and get so the right size. So if we get snapping... I get snapping because you bought the wrong size jacket. So um, the daughter, Judy, drove an imported sports car. So, yeah. And the wife bought furniture for the mansion and she was worried her husband was going to be mad. So she was trying to return it. Sounds like she was probably correct. Yeah. So another catalyst may have been his mental state. He had been hospitalized previously. The family told people he had had minor heart attacks, but most likely it was suicide attempts. It said that his wife may have been trying to have him committed to a mental facility. So I think all these things were culminating factors that led up to that early morning attack. Yeah, massive, crushing, overwhelming debt and a wife that just refuses to buy clothes that fit. <laughs> it's and a too combination. much furniture for my ballroom. It's basically a time bomb waiting to explode. So let's go back to how the doctor died. The 2009 article stated that he downed a glass of acid, but in reality, he died of an overdose of what they called yellow jackets. Okay. These were barbiturates that were inside bright yellow capsules. This is the same drug that killed Marilyn Monroe. There were other pills found in his system as well. So yeah, that's what he did. But the acid, this makes a lot more sense than the acid, but isn't quite as exciting, I guess. You guess. I guess. This is, well, either OD (laughs) on some yellow jackets, which probably (laughs) sound cooler than they really are, or no, I just uncorked this hydrochloric acid, just downed an entire fifth. So remember how I said Harold had been doing a little reading in his study before the crime? Yes. Well, next to his corpse, they found the ball peen hammer, the empty bottle of pills, and a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy. So the ball peen hammer part was real. Yes, that was real. Okay, so that's pretty graphic. The book was open to the following passage. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within the forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. And that seems to sum up his outlook on what their perfect life had become, don't you think? Yeah, that's yeah. definitely a good description of this guy who's clearly yeah, it's sad. was mentally unstable, Due to all Only these, she'd outside been able things. to get him committed beforehand. Yeah, that could have uh, that could have made a big change in their outcome for sure. After the death of their parents, the three pearls and children moved to the East Coast to live with relatives. Their whereabouts today are unknown. One thing I found very strange at the end of the story is this, and we're going to play a clip. What I always found very interesting is everybody knows the tale, the ghost stories, and the legends of the Los Feliz murder house and what happened there. Everybody goes to the house, but you have to remember that they are real people. So with the deaths, obviously they have to be buried somewhere. And that brings us to this cemetery. And that cemetery is the home of Peace Memorial Park in East LA, where you'll find the final resting place of the 
mother and father, the husband and wife, the Perelson. Not too far from the front entrance of the cemetery is where you'll find the final resting place of Dr. Harold N. Perelson. In beloved memory, Dr. Harold N. Perelson, 1909 to 1959. What I find very interesting though, is that he's buried right next to his wife, the wife that he murdered, Lillian Perelson. It just seems a little dark and morbid, doesn't it? That clip was from Gimme Life Collective. And yeah, I agree. I find it very weird that they would bury a woman next to her murderer. What do you think? Very strange. I mean, who who, who made, made that, that decision? decision? <laughs> yeah. Well, most likely they had already bought the plots. So a lot of people did that and still do. Like you buy your plots ahead of time. And I guess they're like, well, I might as well, well use I mean, them. I haven't bought a plot. I'm just assuming <laughs> well, that we when I either. kick off, we're just going to be tossed into the ocean. <laughs> I'm cool with that. So what's become of this house today? Like I said, a family bought it soon after the murder-suicide, but reportedly never moved in, only using it for storage. They bought a <laughs> $2.4 million house. Nah, I just need some extra place to put this furniture, you know, and, and well, Bob's got a very big collection of bowling trophies, and we thought the ballroom would more than cover it. <laughs> well, it was like not $2.4 million then, but I guess the equivalent of it, I think it sold for like 46000 Okay, yeah. To them. I would buy a mansion for 46000 But to it's 1960, so no, you wouldn't have that. Well, I view myself as a Don Draper kind of guy. So if I was there in the 60s, I'd have some money. I'd invent the ad for Coke. You know? <laughs> they owned the property until 2016 when it sold to attorney Lisa Bloom and her husband, Braden Pollock. They intended to renovate it, but the cost was more than 50% of the value. So that would mean they'd have to bring the whole property up to code. And like the grade of the land is not right. So they would have to tear the house down, regrade the land. And it was just not financially feasible. They basically gutted the house and it's like down, there's nothing in it now. It's down to the studs and you can, uh, there's no Christmas tree anymore. No presents. I was about to ask you that. And you just <laughs> totally ruined it for me. No. So it's very sad now. And I've seen a lot of pictures and I'll put them on our site so you can see what the inside looked like. And some pictures that other people took before when there were things in there. Because when they sold the house after the deaths of the Pearlsons, they actually sold it with all the furniture in it and some of the personal belongings, clothes, shoes, things like that. So there probably were things there for a long time. So let me ask you this, since we went all through this, has anyone claimed to have seen a ghost there? Have there been any kind of paranormal activity from these people outside of the woman that thought she heard a voice? Uh, a lot of people do go in there and they say they feel weird. It's the people that, you know, take out their iPhone app and do an EVP and that kind of thing. But yeah. Which we all know you can't do it through an iPhone <laughs> no, app. You, you have, have to get the $80 device from one of these uh, ghost hunter supply stores, which I'm sure I'll probably end up with <laughs> one at some point. But yeah, some people say that they hear and see things in there, but the people, like I said, um, Lisa Bloom and her husband, they don't believe in that stuff and they don't, they don't say that there's anything in there. Of course they don't because they're probably going to try to sell this well, place at some point. Well, they did sell it. They actually listed it. Oh, those are it. the people that sold it? Yes. No. They bought it in 2016. Okay. But they just listed it for sale again in 2019 and it took uh, like 18 months or so. To sell, they listed it for $3.5 million, but they actually got $2.3 million. Okay, so I'm thinking they do believe in ghosts. <laughs> they just act like they didn't so they can unload the property. I guess they were probably hoping for a bidding war on it because, you know, it's so famous. But Who wants to buy a haunt? Well, Zach Bagans probably would. I know he buys everything that's haunted. Well, the so. problem is you can't 
do anything with it unless you're going to tear it down and regrade the land. I mean, and at that point you lose the mystique. Yeah. So, I mean, you could live in it the way it is and just like put sheetrock back up and stuff and not renovate. Boring, just like, like they say, this, the kitchen house. is tiny and that kind of thing. Cause they had tiny kitchens in the fifties and stuff. So yeah, yeah, you couldn't do any major reconstruction. So, well, I'm going to go with the place is probably haunted, and I guess we'll never get a chance to go there. If ghost stories come from traumatic events, and they usually do, this one sounds like, even though it was exaggerated. Yeah. So I'm thinking this story was just blown way out of proportion. It still sounds like a very sad and tragic story, but um, they just tried to add that little element to make it a uh, campfire kind of ghost story, it sounds like, honestly. Yes, that is the fascinating story of the Los Feliz Murder Mansion. Sources for this story were a lot of YouTube videos, including from Gimme Life Collective, the website Dirt, the LA Times article by Bob Poole, the website Curbed LA, and the podcast The Murder House of Los Feliz. For our second story, this one actually did occur on Christmas Day. We're going to start with a little song. It was on last Christmas So by that song, you can probably tell this is an old crime. Well, it definitely sounded very bluegrass (laughs) to me, so I'm already down with this. It actually took place in 1929, but it still fascinates people nearly 100 years later. This is the story of the Lawson Family Massacre. So the Lawson Family were tobacco farmers near Germantown, North Carolina, in Stoke County. North Uh, Kakalaki. Yeah, I looked it up. It's a little north of uh, Winston-Salem. Okay, yeah, in the tobacco lands of North Carolina. We're actually from North Carolina, and during my research, I listened to many interviews with people that were from the area, and they sound just like you'd expect. So what you're saying is they sound exactly like me. They sound like you with that southern drawl. That I'm so famous (laughs) They all sound so nice and charming, and that's what the Lawsons seemed like. That's right, sugar. (laughs) So the Lawson family was made up of the father, Charles, or Charlie, his wife, Fanny. Okay, Fanny. That was her actual name. It's definitely a 1920s situation. That was her actual name. You wouldn't even have to say anything about this story. Say one of the characters, no, one of the people in this story's name's Fanny, and I'm like, 1920s. (laughs) They had a 17-year-old daughter named Marie, a 16-year-old son named Arthur, a daughter named Carrie, who was 12, a daughter, Mabel, age 7, a son, James, age four, a son, Raymond, age two, and a four-month-old daughter named Mary Lou. Wow, that is a lot of people yeah, so if in you're one counting, house. That's seven children. They had an eighth child named William, but he had died of an illness at age six back in 1920. So having that many children was pretty common back then. You gotta sure. have somebody to work the farm, you know. Yeah, I'm sure that would come in handy. But unfortunately, this story doesn't have a happy ending for them. A couple weeks before Christmas in 1929, Charlie takes his whole family into town and buys them all new clothes and arranges to have a family portrait made. Now, that may be common these days, but back in the 1920s, it was a luxury they could not afford. Remember, they're tobacco farmers. Yeah, and it's also the 1920s. Yeah, so it was like 
luxury and they could not afford that. And so I would be a little suspicious if it were me, wouldn't you? I'm, I'm only suspicious because I feel like this is sounding sort of ominous and it's going some more bad. Yeah, this seems to point to some sort of premeditation on Charles's part. It's like he wants to memorialize his family for the world to see. You've got to see this photo. Did I show it to you? Is that the one where I was like, oh, yeah, that guy definitely yes. killed somebody. And you're like, yes. that's not the guy. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> they all look like they're going to kill somebody. Yeah, so I'm going to post that on our website and social media. you got to check it out. It's really eerie seeing this family, knowing what happens to them and all these little kids. But would you say it's creepy? I would say it's eerie. Can I say it's creepy? <laughs> you can say it. Okay. So now let's fast forward to Christmas Day, 1929. The oldest daughter, Marie, is baking a raisin cake for Christmas for the family to enjoy. Charlie sends his oldest son, Arthur, remember him, he's 16, yeah. into town to get some ammunition for hunting. The two daughters, Carrie and Maybelle, are planning to go visit their aunt on her nearby farm. But as the two girls set out across the yard, their father is waiting for them by the barn. He steps out and shoots both girls. His wife is sitting on the porch, and when she sees this, she runs into the house screaming. Charlie follows her and shoots her inside the house. Oh my goodness. Next, he shoots his 17-year-old daughter, Marie, and his two young sons. Last, he beats the four-month-old baby, Mary Lou, to death. Who could do that? Wow. I mean, I can't imagine anyone doing any of this stuff, but why are you going to go yeah. and beat the baby? It must be crazy. Uh, so It's awful. So now that he's annihilated almost his entire family, he arranges the bodies with their arms crossed over their chests and puts a rock under each of their heads. Why? Uh, weird. I'm not knowing. <laughs> Later, Arthur returns to find his family massacred and his father gone. He runs to alert the police. So he didn't take himself out right after he did this, like this story usually ends. Well, it won't take long. As you can imagine, people start flocking to the scene. One of those was Claude Lawson, who was Charlie's nephew. He was 14. This is an interview in 1991, and this is a clip of Claude speaking. And whenever I went in there, there's lay, some of them was laying in, in the house that did. Blood running every way. Killed them all in the house there, but uh, two girls. And he shot them right there at the barn and drug them in the barn and put rocks under their heads. Now, man's bound to be crazy to do things like that, you know. I don't believe I could do nothing like that with my family because you, uh, unless you was crazy or something bad wrong. So, yeah, imagine being a 14-year-old boy like him and the 16-year-old Arthur and coming home and seeing this. I can't even begin to imagine that. Yeah, this just doesn't happen in 1929. Uh, no one had thought anything about the gunshots they had heard earlier because you've got to think the neighbors would have heard a bunch of gunshots. But they said it was they didn't think about it because apparently it was common to go rabbit hunting on Christmas Day and they just assumed that that's what was happening. But now they were listening for gunshots, and after a couple hours, they hear one in the distance, and they head towards the sound, and they, I find, know this is <laughs> they find Charles dead of a gunshot wound to the heart. There were footprints all around him as if he were pacing, maybe trying to get up the courage to pull the trigger. Were they able to confirm that the footprints circling his body were the same size as his footprints? I don't think they looked that hard into it. I think their police work back then was like, yeah, he did it. Look, boys, there's some blood on the scene. Quick, wipe it all up. <laughs> they found letters to his parents with his body, but he didn't express a motive for the crime. Also on his body, they found two unfinished notes. One reads, troubles can cause. And the other reads, no one to blame but. 
So it's like he couldn't complete his thoughts or he didn't want to complete them. So literally the notes both only said that. Yes, that's what they said. Like he was starting to write it, but he was just like, no. So what would cause a man to go crazy one day and just kill most of his family? And why on Christmas Day? We'll come back to that in a little bit. Oh, I certainly hope so, because I want to know what's going on. (laughs) There are a couple theories about his motives we'll talk about. But first, got to talk about what happens after the murders. The Charlotte Observer posted an article about the killings on December 28, 1929, stating that around 5,000 people came to the funeral. Really? They knew that many people? Well, I don't think it's people that they knew. It's just people were just outraged and couldn't believe it and just wanted to come and see all these children, I guess. It said it took three hours for everyone to walk by the open caskets. Little Mary Lou was placed in her mother's arms. That's pretty... Yeah, that's sad. There are pictures of the funeral where you can see just masses of people. I'm going to post those as well. All six children and their parents were buried together in a small cemetery along with their son, William, that had died in 1920. The epitaph reads, not now, but in the coming years, it will be in a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears and then sometime we'll understand. So a few months after the murders in March of 1930, a North Carolina musician named Kid Smith wrote a song about the murder. That's the song we played the clip of at the beginning of the segment. Yeah. It was actually extremely popular and was the top selling hillbilly record at the time. Hillbilly. Yeah, that was a thing. Like hillbilly That's what they rock. call me. I don't know. <laughs> hillbilly rock. So what do you think became of the house? I'm thinking it turned into a circus. Mm, sort of. Charlie's brothers turned it into a tourist attraction. He left everything exactly as it was. Blood and raisin cake included. It sounds like Charlie's brothers are a little bit unhinged. He would charge people 25 cents to tour the house. You would even get a little brochure with a poem about the crime. The money was used to help out Arthur, remember the only surviving son? At least they did something good with the money. Yeah. So no one knows why Charlie sent his remaining son Arthur to the store that day. Perhaps he was the only one that may have been able to stop his father. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, he was big, like from the photo, he looks like he's as big, if not bigger than his dad, so he probably could have overpowered him. So. Yeah. And then there may be the fact that he, in some way, wanted his family to live on. She did. Arthur ended up having a wife and four children, but sadly he died in an automobile accident at the age of 32 in 1945. Oh, that is, that's like World War II, wasn't it? So, but let's get back to this tourist attraction of a house. People would come out on Sundays to tour the house, all while Kid Smith and his band, the Carolina Buddies, played the ballad they wrote titled Murder of the Lawson Family. They're Cassie. just uh, they're just trying to keep it uh, upbeat. Yeah, it's like, imagine that. You walk up and this guy's out here playing the song and there's blood everywhere. Like, son, get my fiddle. We're going to sing about this right <laughs> here for y'all and yuns and you too. And they kept the cake sitting on the table, and people actually started taking raisins off the cake as a souvenir. Oh, that's that's so that's weird. weird. So they ended up having to put a glass cake saver cover over it, for, and they kept it like How that for long years. Does a cake last? Apparently, years. Hmm. So you know, after several years, they let the house to be abandoned. It was later torn down, and the wood was used to make a covered wooden bridge over a brook. I don't think I'd want to cross that bridge. Do they know where that is? Probably. Does it still exist? It it's does. probably been torn down. It probably has because it looked really rickety in the in the photo I saw. I was I, like, yeah, no. You remember in um what's that Chevy Chase movie, Funny Farm? Yeah. When they go across that bridge and it just collapses. Yeah. That was that's what it's like. So now we know what happened, but let's get back to the why. Oh, I thought you were gonna leave me hanging. <laughs> what was his motive? 
Some have theorized that he had a brain injury from a ditch digging accident the previous year. Gotta hate those ditch digging accidents. I know, it happens every year. A lot of people said he was never the same after the accident, but this is unlikely because an autopsy found no brain damage whatsoever. I'm thinking it's more of a mental thing. Well, this is more likely the motive. In the book, White Christmas, Bloody Christmas by M. Bruce Jones and Trudy J. Smith, they like went around and interviewed all the friends and relatives and neighbors. And one of those was Charles's niece, Stella Lawson Bowles. Here's a clip from Stella in 1991. This was just unbelievable when this happened. I couldn't hardly take it in. Because after being there and seeing that this love that he showed toward his family and in this tragedy occurred. Well, I never did have no hard feelings toward Uncle Charlie because I always loved Uncle Charlie. It was just a close family, and I didn't know that things was going on in the family, though, like they were until since this happened. So Stella was only 13 when the murders occurred, and she described her uncle as a loving family man, and she said she never held it against him, according to her. She never held the mass murder of his family against him? she just said he was just a great guy. So Trudy and Bruce, who are father and daughter that wrote this book, they spent two years interviewing and gathering information for their book, and they concluded that essentially no one would ever know the reason why until... Oh, I, oh, I thought that, that, but then there's a book. Yes, right before they were going to publish the book, Stella called Trudy and told her a dark family secret that she'd been hiding since she was a child. According to Stella, Marie, Charlie's 17-year-old daughter, had confessed that she was pregnant and that her father, Charlie, was the baby's father. Okay. Yep, that's messed so, up. So, yeah, you can see this could be a reason to snap because can you imagine that scandal? 1929, Especially North Carolina. in a state like North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, it's bad no matter what or where, but, you know, 1920s, North yeah. Carolina, you can't hide that. What are you going to do? Well, that that is a convenient secret to show up just in time for publishing a book. <laughs> it is, but the lady was really old, and I don't think she was thinking monetary you know, I don't know. I just remember how it was <laughs> back in those days. Well, I think she knew it. She just didn't want to say it. But, you know, I guess she thought these people have been working so hard for two years. I probably should tell the truth. Yeah, I, I, I could see. I still don't understand why you kill the whole family. Yeah. Like why? If but, you're going to kill somebody, you should choose yourself first and then get victims after that. Yeah. Like. <laughs> So if he'd killed himself, like, what would the family have done? Like, how can you run a tobacco farm? Well, I guess Arthur would have to be. Well, what happened to him? Well, only Arthur was left, right? Yeah. So what happened to him? I think he probably got help from family and worked with his family. Yeah. Yeah, because he did grow up and get married and have children. So there's actually a little museum dedicated to the Lawson family. It's at... Madison Dry Goods Country Store in Madison, North Carolina. Have you ever been there? I know where Madison, North Carolina is. The museum sits on the original site of the funeral home where the members of the Lawson family were embalmed. Isn't that weird? That's pretty weird. Yeah. So to this day, tourists and locals alike pop in, view the newspaper clippings, and just check out the little memorabilia they got going on there. Yep. And they just drop on into Madison Dry Goods <laughs> and they get themselves some a good sundries. old, get themselves some sundries and what's others and have themselves a nice big drink of sundrop and take a look at the Lawson family affair. <laughs> uh, make sure you check out the book, Merry Christmas, Bloody Christmas by M. Bruce Jones and Trudy J. Smith. 
and her subsequent book, The Meaning of Our Tears, which she pulled out from their um, grave. Remember? I remember that. That was the epitaph. Yeah. So she uh, like found a lot more information after that. She compiled it together and it's probably really interesting. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> I really wanted to read it, but I couldn't get it in time. Yeah. But I intend to read it. So sources from this episode were an article from The Lineup in the series Deadly Secrets on YouTube and several other Wikipedia, that type thing. Yep. She did some good research on this one. She, I want to thank Crystal for taking the lead in this episode. She did a lot of research, spent a lot of time working on this. So everybody make sure to I like murder. <laughs> let her know not to practice these things she learns on her family members. Oh, definitely not. This brings us to the portion of the show we like to call Layla and Coffee Talk. This one we're calling Coffee's Great Escape. And with me on this segment is going to be our youngest daughter, Kirsten. She's home from college for the winter break, and she's going to tell us about Coffee's Great Escape. Hello. Today I was in my room and I heard a lot of commotion outside. So I went outside to the kitchen up to the window and I saw coffee outside in the middle of the road. Just in the middle of the road. Just in the middle of the road. It's like I'm used to being woken up with the dogs barking every morning. And so I didn't think anything of it. But it sounded like she was farther away and like Layla was really close. Oh, yeah. So was where was Layla? I think Layla was in my room with me, actually. <laughs> So what was she doing in the street? Uh, she was outside in the street barking at the these two people that were walking down the street. She was being a very bad girl. I guess it's a good thing she doesn't bite. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they said she wasn't trying to do anything. She just likes to they talk. They scared her. She's all talk. She is all talk. She broke out of the fence. I think she pulled it forward from the bottom. Well, we're going to have to make sure that's secure. So <laughs> now we know she's an escape artist. Yeah, they all are. <laughs> Didn't your cat get out too? Yeah, Bobby got out. He was outside in the backyard all night. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's a good thing he didn't run off like Kylie's cat did that one time. Yeah, and then Nope went outside too. He went out like he was somebody. <laughs> all right, well, thank you for joining us on this episode and we'll talk to you later. Mm -hmm. So thanks to my daughter for joining us on this episode to let everyone know how our dogs are apparently or at least our dog is apparently an escape artist and also likes to threaten the neighbors. <laughs> and she also mentioned her cats, Bobby and Nub. And I think you should maybe put some pictures of them on our website too, so they can see. Yeah, they're beautiful, luxurious cats. And it's so funny, we actually got them from a trash can. Someone set them when they were little tiny kittens on the trash can at our church. As a donation, I think. <laughs> and I usually make fun of our animals saying they're dumpster animals and they come from the trash. But these two <laughs> they cats really are literally came cats. from a trash can. Yeah. And they were like a pound each or something. They were tiny. So and now can... they're gigantic, luxurious, like lions. They do. They have manes. Yeah, they look like lions. So you need to post a picture of their manes. They're, they're gorgeous cats. Yeah. So... You can find us online if you go to our website, www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com or www.scarysavannah.net. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you look up the username at Scary Savannah. If you still working on getting a TikTok. No, I actually, I actually made one. Oh, you did? I, I don't know how to put videos oh. on it, but we have one. So okay. you can go follow our zero videos. <laughs> and I'm, oh, I'm 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 going to figure that out because I could put videos of the dogs on there. Yeah. Well, I'll show you how to log in. 
So as soon as I figure that out. <laughs> but I did create an account. Cool. You can also give us a phone call at 912-406-2899. That's 912-406-2899. That'll go right into a voicemail. You can leave us a message. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Let us know if you have any suggestions or corrections or if there's anything you'd like to say and we could uh, play it on an episode for you. So please be sure to give us a call. You can also support the podcast if you go to patreon.com forward slash scary savannah and for as little as three dollars a month and help us keep this uh podcast rolling and they can actually get a few things if they do that too right crystal yeah i think there's stickers and coffee mugs there are stickers there are coffee mugs and there are t-shirts yeah and you can actually order merchandise off our website too there's a link for the store there so go check that out yeah we actually both just got i got a shirt and you got a hoodie I did. I got a hoodie and I've been wearing it to bingo. <laughs> we got some listeners from there. Yeah, because there's a lady at bingo that says that my voice reminds yeah. her of Chris Staples. She loves his voice. It's yeah. so funny. It's probably the nicest compliment I've ever received. <laughs> so I think that wraps it up for us this week. And I believe there's just one last thing. Join us next time in Savannah where the ghosts and the good times live on. Mm-hmm.